In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. A, um, a stand-up comedian won my heart this week. Uh, her name is Robin Shaw, and I had not heard of her until I saw an interview uh, she gave with the, to the New York Times about a video that Shaw had uploaded of herself. She posted of herself on TikTok back in November, and you can Google it and find the video if you want. Uh, but in the video, she is, uh, she's laughing almost uncontrollably. Simultaneously, you can tell she's almost about to cry because she tells the camera as she pours herself uh, a very large glass of wine. She has just found her list of New Year's resolutions for 2020. And here's how it read... with it. Okay. Travel more, she wrote. And then the interviewer notes that she's been sequestered in the tiniest of tiny studio apartments in Manhattan. Make more money. Shaw has been unemployed since March. Be more social. Nope. Spend more time with my grandma. Both of her grandmothers died this year, the article says. So with 2021 bearing down on her, Shaw told the Times, I am keeping the bar so low. No goals, she said laughing, just one day at a time. Probably wise, I think, keeping the bar low. But I would imagine, I would bet that most of us have made some resolutions for 2021. Human beings have been doing it for 4,000 years, ever since the ancient Babylonians kept the feast of Akitu by promising to repay debts they had incurred that year and to return things that they had borrowed. We're just wired that way, that at the turning of things, whether it's birthdays or New Year's, the first of the month, uh, even on Mondays, we think about all the ways that we could be better, we wish we were better, and we vow to be better. Now, this flies in the face of the market data, by the way. Almost no statistics say we keep our resolutions. None of them. Uh, the numbers, in fact, say that gym memberships spike right after New Year's Day, but they drop off a cliff by the third week of January. We, ma we make it about three weeks. Like 6% of our resolutions ever become habits in our lives. We know that we are not keeping these resolutions, but we make them anyway. And businesses know this about us, so they market to it. They know that we wish that we were better, and they try to sell us uh, self-helpy type things. So um, uh, Amanda Mull uh, wrote a, a piece for The Atlantic back in 2019 called It's the Most Inadequate Time of the Year, which I've had, you know, stuck on repeat in my mind, you know, it's the most inadequate time for like a week. Um, and whether it is, uh, you know, it's Peloton uh, pushing stationary bikes on us, or it's Blue Apron tempting us with healthy meals that come in boxes by mail, 
she says, Maul says, that attempts like this abound to influence consumer behavior by reminding you that it's almost next year and you are still the same imperfect person you've always been. With New Year's resolutions, the commodification of inadequacy can be explicit in a way that might seem rude during most of the year, and the message is clear. You've got some work you should be doing. And these companies have some related products they would like to show you. New year, new you, new gym membership. You have some work that you should be doing. That's the message that's pushed at us via almost every channel of media. And it is often the message that is in our heads just on an endless loop. You are not enough. You should be smarter, thinner, richer, better at your job, better at your marriage. Be who you needed when you were younger. That's a particularly compelling one, I think. Or be the person your dog thinks you are. You should be, you should be, you should be. Well, the church's antidote to this malady, its, its prescription for our sickness. The surprising and oftentimes confounding doctrine today at the heart of what we read from the epistle to the Ephesians is the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. It's from a word that St. Paul uses. He uses a form of the word eklektos, uh, which means elect or, or chosen. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the parable of the wedding feast. You remember he says uh, that many are called, but few are eklektoi, few are chosen. So um, I want to take just a few minutes and look at two things. First, look at the idea of election, and then secondly, the implication of it. The idea of election and the implication of election. First, the idea. St. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So this and other passages like it are the basis for the doctrine of election. And in many kind of mainline churches like ours, it is the third rail of preaching. You touch it and you die. And Americans, I think, are especially averse to the doctrine of election. Uh, this is what Leslie Newbigin, the missiologist, said about it in The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. He said, There is surely no part of Christian teaching which has been the subject of so much ridicule and indignant rejection as the doctrine of election. How absurd for intelligent, educated people to believe that Almighty God should have His favorites, that He should pick out one small tribe among all the families of humankind to be the special objects of His attention. Is it not simply a piece of ignorant egotism? And yet, and yet it's plain that the doctrine of election is central to any true exposition of the Bible. From the very beginning, God chooses 
calls and sends particular people. God is always the initiator. The words of Jesus to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you, are in line with everything in the Bible from beginning to end. Everything in the Bible from beginning to end. New Begin is saying that God just works that way. He is always, always the subject of the sentence. So at the beginning of our reading today, there are three main verbs, and God is the actor in all of them. God just does that. He chooses one person, one family, one people, and then He uses them to accomplish His purpose. It's a New Begin heavy sermon today, because in another book of his, he says that from the beginning of the Bible to its end, we are presented with the story of a universal purpose carried out through a series, a continuous series of particular choices. Universal purpose, particular choices. God chooses one to be the bearer of his blessing for the many. Abraham is chosen to be the pioneer of faith and so to receive the blessing through which all nations will be blessed. Moses is chosen to be the agent of Israel's redemption. Israel is chosen to be a kingdom of priests for the whole earth. The disciples are chosen so that they may be fishers of men. The church is a body chosen to declare the wonderful deeds of God. Abraham Israel, the Ephesians, you. God chooses people across time and then uses them for His purpose to be witnesses of a more excellent way of life, a way of life that says, not your life for mine, but my life for you. A way of love. That is election. But listen to point two. Election always carries a distinct implication. A distinct implication. He chose us in Christ, St. Paul said, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him in love. He destined us for adoption as His children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of His glorious grace that He freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. So this is the part where it gets tricky. So stay with me. God, God chooses, yes. God chooses before the foundation of the world, before you or I ever do anything good or bad, anything that makes us worthy or unworthy of being chosen. Because that's how grace works. But Dallas Willard said grace is not opposed to effort, grace is just opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. God chose you and it comes with a particular task, and that is to be holy and blameless, to lead a peculiar life. A peculiar life. There is work we have to do, and that is to cooperate with grace in our lives, to let God make us witnesses, to let God help us live my life for your life, and in short, to let God mold us until we look like love. 
God's tools for the task are myriad. Each could be its own sermon. He's got the sacraments. He, he uses sacred scripture and a life of prayer. Uh, we keep the commandments and we repent when we break them. These are all chisels and, and hammers that God uses to chip away at us until we look like Jesus, until we look like love looks. That is the implication of election. One last little quote. A few weeks ago, um, Allison in the gallery gave me uh, this book by Michael Curry, our presiding bishop. It's, uh, it's called Love is the Way. It's his story of how God found him, called him to be a, a pastor, a priest, uh, made him a bishop, and then now he's our presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. And I finally finished the book this week, and I'll leave you with these words that close the book from the, from the end. Uh, it's about this peculiar life that God's people are chosen and called to, this peculiar shape of life. And Bishop Curry says, when God, who is love, becomes our spiritual center of gravity and love our moral compass, we live differently. Regardless of what the world around us does, the world changes for the better one life at a time. So don't give up on love. Listen to it. Trust it. Give into it. Obey it. Or put it another way, cooperate with God. Let God mold you until you look like love. If you're looking for a resolution, that's a worthy one, I think. That God chose you and calls you to be the beloved. So on this first Sunday of 2021, resolve to let God shape you into what you already are. Consider that an invitation. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.